Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You came close, but you never made it. And if you were going to make it, you would have made it before now. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we have Lori Santos back on the show. Like Molly Crockett, Lori has become a celebrity since we last had her on the podcast. When is that going to happen to us? I think a correction, Lori, Lori's been a celebrity. Yeah, I mean, I had a TED Talk. Like, come on, kids. Oh, I, so we're just going to just do that right away. We're going to get to that. <laughs> The harsh answer is much like uh, Ving Rames says t- to Bruce Willis, Tamler, if it was going to happen, it would have happened. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not going to get there. <laughs> we got to take it. We should just take a dive, get, get the quick money. <laughs> I, I recommend accidentally teaching a course on happiness and not <laughs> realizing that you turn into a cult celebrity. Well, I feel like you had already taught a pretty popular course on sex and sex and yep. evolution right so yeah. so you're just racking them up it's almost as if you're chasing the fame Lori. <laughs> <laughs> when will it be enough Lori? when will <laughs> every student at yale no you were just on the today show right i was yesterday actually switched around um it was the megan kelly show so i got to uh, hang out with megan kelly and talk to her about the course how, oh we're gonna put a, we'll put a link to that how was it uh, it was fun. It was fun. TV is just incredibly surreal because it's like there's all these like handlers and all this stuff and like hair and makeup and then you go on and it's like a minute 30 spot. It's like you don't f- say anything. Fluffers. And, I mean, yeah. <laughs> fluffing your hair. Fluffing my uh, hair. It was very rainy yesterday. So the hair people were like really disturbed. <laughs> we're going to need more product. But but yeah, it's surreal. And it was across it was across the way from Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Fallon walked by. So that was oh, the highlight. Oh, wow. Newfound fame. I, I feel like I should say uh, <laughs> an introduction to Lori. <laughs> Lori, oh, yeah, Lori is a professor of psychology at, at Yale University. And really, I have very little to say other than you do awesome work. And a lot of times I will say this person is one of my favorite people. And it's always has the qualifier in academics. But with Lori, like, I don't have to have that qualifier. Like, you're just one of my, just one of the best people I know, Aww. just hands down. So, so I'm really excited to have, to have uh, any association with you, really. Well, someday <laughs> when I have a famous podcast, I'll say the same thing about you. There you, you go. <laughs> I'm still trying to decide whether or not to talk about whether, what your ethnicity is. Did we talk about that last time? <laughs> we did. Has the don't... case been settled, please? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah, but Very Bad up, Wizards, 94. <laughs> what is Lori's ethnicity? It came up again, I think. Was Tamler, were you telling me about, like, I think Betsy Pollock tweeted that, that at least we have a woman of color teaching. And someone was like, is she? <laughs> and I think, I think either way you are, but you know. Right. I, I hope they meant person of color, not woman. That's like somehow more. Because I think the point of controversy last time was whether you were Hispanic or not. But I don't think the possibility of you being African-American came up. Um, oh, yeah, we which talked did, about it, didn't we? Did we? I'm biracial, I'm half Cape Verdean, and I'm half French. And Cape Verdean is in of itself kind of biracial African Portuguese. Yeah. It's kind of, I'm a mutt of mutts. It's complicated. I say we avoid it. Let's just side <laughs> this conversation. Oh, see, I'm, I'm just really glad we recorded that part. <laughs> so do, do you know the, 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 SP, the SPSB version of this, which is that um, Christina Olson, who does work on trans kids and how trans kids view themselves, one problem of which is like the world sees their gender as not what they see their gender as. And so she uses me as an example. So she puts up my, <laughs> my picture and she's like, for example, my colleague Lori Santos is like biracial. She's like African-American, but everyone thinks she's Hispanic. And she says, as she does this, the whole auditorium like hushes and everyone's like, and it's like, she's not Hispanic. <laughs> and so she's using this example mostly to like educate the social psychology community about my true ethnicity. The only way I'm a mutt is... Well, I married a non-Jew, but that's not really me that's a mutt. That's more of a moral violation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're having you on now and your vault in celebrity. I think you've, you've, it's it's, it's kind of kicked into a next level since we last had you on. And that is because of this course that you are teaching the good life psychology and the good life psychology yeah. and the good life and so we're going to talk about that it looks absolutely fascinating um one question i had before we get there when when i first met you and for the first few years you were i i was so jealous of the fact that you got to go to that island in puerto rico and work with the monkeys the capuchin monkeys and i know that that was under threat during the hurricane so but so what's the status of it now so it got pretty messed up it was like in the eye of hurricane maria and so it like hit monkey island before it hit mainland puerto rico and so like the whole island was basically destroyed like all the trees got like many of the trees got knocked down all the vegetation was destroyed every standing structure on the island got destroyed amazingly the monkeys were like fine though which is like a complete mystery because they're like these little 40 pound monkeys and like whole like buildings got blown off the island like there was a truck that like delivered all the monkey chow on the island and it was just like gone like just like blew off the island but somehow the monkeys (laughs) were mostly fine which is awesome the problem is that now they've had like 170 days where the people who take care of them don't have power and it's really hard to get out there and so they've been getting food they've been trying to rebuild stuff the staff have been amazing but just like the general conditions in puerto rico are just terrible like yeah. So it's really hard for the staff to go out and like rebuild all these structures for the monkeys when they don't have like a house themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like, um, but the good news is like we've done a bunch of relief efforts to get relief for the people there, for the monkeys. And they just announced last week that research can resume there, um, which is great. But logistically, it's still like the town we normally live doesn't have power. So it's like, how do we collect data if we can't like charge our video cameras or have cell phones or 
like send yeah. the data to the cloud. So it's it's actually really strange because it's it's a U.S. lab that now is like running research in a third world country because they don't have power or clean water or all these things. It's when is that going to get restored? Is there any? I don't know. Sense? I don't know. I mean, we're like in the Northeast and we just had this bad snowstorm and people are complaining on Facebook like, it's been 18 hours since we had power. Like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, Puerto Rico's at 174 days, people. It's <laughs> not. It's like crazy when you think it's, about it. So it's incredible. I don't know. The, the Puerto Rico situation is one of the things that makes the the stupidity of the news cycle most salient. We're like, uh, yeah, like at some point it's been long enough. Like maybe it'll go long enough that it gets back in the news cycle because of the ridiculousness. But it's certainly not a linear relationship to the importance of yeah. <laughs> like the I mean, for example, I was just on TV because I was like, yeah, has a class on happiness. I'm like, wait, can we cancel that and say there's like 200,000 people without power, clean water that are American citizens? Because that. Is Jesus. So I also wanted to ask before we get into the class whether anything cool is going on with the dogs. Um, couple cool things. We have a couple studies trying to. So basically, the dog stuff now is trying to look at whether or not dogs are different than humans and how they learn and how they use humans to learn. And the upshot is the hypothesis is like people have all these biases when they learn from other people, and dogs might not show those. So dogs might be like more rational than people when they're learning from others. Um, and so efficient, efficient learners in the way that we aren't exactly like we have all these assumptions about people being truthful and kind of gracie and maximizers, but in any case where those assumptions aren't true, like we're going to suck at learning. And so what we're finding is that the dogs don't have those assumptions to a certain extent, but actually under conditions where like people aren't providing full information or, or efficient information that dogs actually do better, which is kind of cool. We should breed like one selective strain of Grycian dogs. I mean, Able- it's kind of ridiculous that we didn't, right? Because like, we're just breeding them to, like we bred ourselves to be Grycian. Like why did the dogs not figure that out? Like, For those listeners my- that might not know what it means to be Grycian, can you explain? Yeah, I mean, you're the philosopher, right? And that's, yeah, you know, I was going to say. talk about grace on Very Bad Wizards, is that like allowed? <laughs> no, the way, way we mean it is that like people have certain assumptions about communication, that it is truthful, that it is meant to be communicative, that um, it should be kind of giving all the appropriate information, but none more. Like those kinds of assumptions go into how we communicate. And there's this question about whether or not dogs share those assumptions, not when they right. are communicating, because most of the time they're not talking to us, <laughs> but when we're talking to them, like, do they assume we're doing that? Right. And the answer seems to be they don't really, which is kind of weird because they're really good at learning from our communication. They just don't have the same assumptions. Dogs who aren't encumbered by their the delusion that we'll be honest <laughs> to them. Exactly. Uh, they don't mess up. They yeah. don't mess it's, up. It's like we have, like... One, we have one study now that's, um, we, don't, we don't have the data on it, but but here's the idea. So imagine I'm like, show you some weird thing that has all these like little locations on it. And I say, hey, I'm going to teach you how my, my little box works. And I open up one of the locations. And I'm like, see, there's a cool thing in this like location. And I give it to you. You would assume that like, that's the only cool thing about the box. But that assumes that, you know, I'm not lying to you or like, I actually know what cool, like where the cool stuff is in the box and so on. And so the way you test that with kids is you just give kids like a box and you see what they do. And you find that, like, in that condition, kids only do the thing that you showed them to do. They don't, like, actually explore on their own. But our prediction is, like, dogs are going to be, like, that's one cool thing, but I'm not going to just believe that you figured everything out. I'm going to, like, do my own trial and error looking for stuff and figure things out. I mean, it's crazy. It means we're constraining our learning and our exploration based on what other people know, which is good if other people know stuff, but 
I mean, you're the ones with the podcast. Like people don't <laughs> always know. What you think, <laughs> they, you know. Yeah. It's sort of like, I was about to say it's kind of different from the over-imitation findings, but it's sort of consistent with the over-imitation findings in monkeys where, and, and in human kids where I was going to say, well, kids aren't cutting to the chase with over-imitation. They're doing everything, but that's because it's coming from a human being where they're assuming that, that the exhaustive truth is what the human being is showing me, but the monkeys are like, fuck this, like, let's just get to the prize or whatever. Exactly. And we've done the same thing with dogs and dogs are also like, fuck this, let's get to the prize, yeah. which we, which we actually, we went into that study, not thinking that dogs would do that. Like we started by thinking that dogs would be Gricean because yeah. they're so good at communication with us. But then and in fact, we so assumed this, so we're like, we need a control condition. And so we paid all this money to also go test dingoes, which are these Australian wild dogs who shouldn't do the same thing. But then it turned out the dogs and the dingoes did exactly the same thing. So we wasted huh. like $4,000 on a control condition that we didn't need. And we put it in the paper anyway, just kind of like, <laughs> and we just thought we'd do these other really expensive tests because obviously. <laughs> I like yeah. that you're testing cultural diversity in dogs. <laughs> like you should ask whether they think water is h2o on twin earth <laughs> <laughs> that's actually the next study in our grant proposal tamler is yeah. dog twin earth studies yeah, that's like okay. the next one yeah rex rex prime <laughs> is drinking h3o <laughs> you're my daughter's hero because you worked with monkeys first and then now you work with dogs which are pretty much her two favorite things so you have her ideal life I, I don't know what you like you have the perfect life not even just a good life but the perfect life um, as far as she's concerned thanks and that's probably why sh why you were tapped to teach this course <laughs> so <laughs> that's a sad thing is i wasn't ta I, I did this out of my own like free will slash i don't know gluttony for punishment or something yeah so let's talk about that how did you like what what motivated you because we read your syllabus. I don't know if it's publicly available. If it is, it is not. can link to it. I can, okay, then, you then all we, can post it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you say is that you really do care about, um, among other things, improving the lives of undergrads. And yeah. I, I know that we say stuff like that all the time. <laughs> but, like, that's not really why I study anything. Or <laughs> no, but for the class, the sad thing is, like, it sounds so cheesy, but that actually. So, so I have this new role now where I'm head of one of the residential colleges at Yale. So Yale is like Hogwarts where it has But, but you're colleges. not a master. You're no longer I'm not a master. master. Okay. Yeah, yeah, never was. A, you would have been a master, but, you know, terminology changes around. So now I'm a head. Were you, before the change, were you mistress? That... Uh, you would have been, I would have been master oh, also okay. before the change. And my, my husband's the associate head, which means he's ass head, which is like <laughs> a terminology thing they didn't think about when they switched it. But yeah, but, but yeah, but this, but the sad thing is like, so now I'm head of college. I live with these 400 students and like, you kind of get to know them in this way where you like start loving them. Like I don't have kids, so maybe y'all can explain this to me, but like they're these like little creatures that are your charges and you just end up caring about them in like a deep way, like much more so than any students I taught or, or even grad students as mean as it is to say, cause they're kind of adults and they're sort of doing their thing. But these folks are like still kind of learning and fragile. And like the sad thing is if you compare how they interact with like college life compared to at least what it was like when I was there a long time ago, like they're just like not very happy. Like they're super anxious. Like they're really stressed out. They have no time for anything. And that's just like sad to be around this community of people that are feeling like that. And I'm like, dudes, y'all are in your, like you're 19. Like you should be partying and like enjoying things or not scared of the future. Like it's just weird. So, so the class was actually born out of like 
like legit caring about them and being like, this is, this is crap that you guys feel this way. Like there's science that will tell you how to do better. Let me just synthesize a course that sounds really cool. So many of you will take it. Maybe if you just like sleep and exercise and like do a gratitude journal every once in a while, you won't have these mental health issues. Hold on, hold on. I'm writing this down. Can I ask about that? Because I've noticed the exact same thing and I've, and I, and I've been teaching, you know, at some level grad school and then as a professor since 2005, I feel like this has gotten increasingly and in some ways dramatically worse with students. Uh, anxiety levels, the, the stress that they're stretched too thin. And I often have that thought. Now, I teach at a, you know, a public university where with a lot of first generation students, but still... I, I it, it seems like this is going on, and I see this with grad students. It seems like this is going on everywhere, at, uh, yeah. no matter what your institution is. And I, I'm wondering, do you have any theories as to why that? First of all, is that really has it just been increasing since we went? We were in school, or is is it just that I've started to notice it more? And if it has been increasing, which I feel like it has, then do you have any diagnosis for why? Yeah, no, all good questions. So I think there's not fantastic data on this because you need like really big nationally representative surveys. The best one was done by this National College Health Association, but it's kind of outdated now as in 2009. But their data suggests that like the levels of all this stuff are like crazy pants, like more than 50% report like being too depressed to function. Um, like almost 60% report being like lonely a lot of the time. I think like 80% say they're overwhelmed with all they have to do and they can't like function because of it. It's just like crazy. And that was like now almost 10 years ago. Right. So I think, I think those numbers are getting worse, at least anecdotally. Um, Why it's gotten so bad. I have no idea. Like I'll blame the usual suspects with absolutely no data. Like I think things like social media and stuff make it worse um, in the sense that like, there's just such obvious social comparisons. It's really hard to get off the grid. Like everything is kind of a performance. Like I just think of all the stuff I was secretly worried about and to have it on display all the time on a device that I was walking around with in college would have been awful. Um, that's just all anecdote. Like there's no, there's not fantastic data on yeah. it. I also think that like just what they have to do to get here is so crazy pants now. Like, like we, we've created students that. Yeah. that are overwhelmed because they We're- just like have to do all stuff. Professors are asked at Cornell to sit in with admissions deans on undergrad mm-hmm. acceptance, uh, undergrad uh, decisions. And so we read, you know, a few hours a week, we read uh, admissions essays and, and packets. And when I read what these kids have been up to, I mean, like, I'm sure some of them are lying, but like, but yeah. obviously I would die. I, I don't right, want right. that. I'm laugh. a tenured professor. I like to think of myself as a busy person, but I'm like, dude, you don't have like, yeah. And I actually, there's some data that, um, again, not nationally representative, but there is a, uh, we don't have a clinical program at Cornell, but we do have one person who teaches the two clinical courses for the undergrad major. And he would give guest lectures in intro psych for many, many years. He would give the clinical guest lecture and he would have the students <clears throat> fill out a depression inventory, like a standardized depression mm-hmm. inventory. And the line is, is insane. Like it, you know, it yeah. could be that people are more willing to report it or whatever, but I, I, I have no I don't reason think this to is doubt. Reporting this. bias, man. Like no, they're just getting so worse, right? And as head of college, right? 
yeah. it's not you see the extreme cases and the extreme cases are really extreme. And it's not just Yale students at all. I mean, this was at the University right. of Minnesota Morris. This is at the University of Houston. This has gotten worse at Houston since I've been there, you know, it's in yeah. 2008. And it's not just college, like a lot of the emails. So so yeah. my inbox is like is blown yeah. up right now like crazy. And, and a lot of the emails I'm getting are from like high schools and people in middle schools. Can you make this content? You know, we're seeing all these same problems in like our 14 year olds. When are we going to intervene to kind of stop this cycle? But No, I know like standardized tests, like there are kids who just like get stomach aches in like seventh and eighth grade and they don't right. realize yet that it's stress, you know, but it's yeah. just like early on. I, I mean, I think all of society is, is, has changed so much that like, I don't know about, about you guys, but I, it, there is, to me, things like email are a clear worsener of my well-being. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah. I was just talking to Betsy Pollock yesterday. She was here to give a talk. Uh, she's a professor at Princeton. And uh, she was saying that, like, you know, she's like, I just gave up the, she's, uh, I just said that it can't be a priority. Like, email. Mm -hmm. And the minute she made that decision, she felt so much better about herself. Well, it's the same thing with so many. I mean, this is the thing people report about social media, too. It's like if you just like delete it, you don't actually miss it as much as you think. And you just have like so much more free time. Anyway, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know why it's such a mess, but it feels like it's such a mess. And it and it was this the for better or for worse, the course came out of my like desire to like help them. So um, so can you describe the course, um, how it works, how it functions? Because there's a lot of really cool aspects to it including yeah, that it has its you. own app and various things so yeah we'll tell give us a brief summary of what you're trying to do the summary you give to Meg, megan kelly and, <laughs> and in, the, in the process can you just include wh whether you're collecting like pre-post data and if that's a plan yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. so um so we are trying to collect pre-post data although we were planning to do that on the app and one thing i learned working with people to develop the app is that apps are like way more complicated to develop. So the app's actually not done yet. It's one of the misnomers in the syllabus. It didn't get ready in time, but it is going to get ready. We're doing a Coursera version of the class, like a free, oh yeah, plug, like the Coursera version of the class will be available March 19th and you can sign up for free anywhere in the world. So take a shorter version of the class and the app will be ready then. Yeah, so uh, so we're going to collect pre-post data with the app, but we didn't get it ready in time for the class, which some folks in positive psychology were really upset with me about because they're like you have a thousand subjects why are you not looking at this but we didn't know we we're gonna get a thousand subjects but anyway so the the class the, the psychology part of the class starts with like misconceptions about what makes you happy right because I think this is part of the problem of positive psychology is like we have motivational systems that have us seek out stuff that we think is going to make us happy but those systems are just like wrong like it's yet another one of these disconnects between wanting and liking that just is just an aspect of the mind that sucks but we like have lots of stuff that deliver to us that like this motivation to like seek out lots of salary or get super awesome stuff. Or for these students, like I, I'm going to die if I don't get a good grade or like a good internship. And like the data just suggests that like those kinds of life circumstances just don't make us as happy as we think. So the class starts out with that. But even before I do that, I have to convince people that people's minds suck because like most of these kids aren't psychologists. So we go through like dumb stuff like visual illusions just to get an example that like, Sometimes your mind is just lying to you. Like these intuitions that you feel really strongly are just incorrect. And different parts of the mind don't really talk to each other. So it's hard, even now that I'm telling you the data and you measure the lines and the visual illusion, like you're not going to update this. 
So it's like, that's just a fact about the mind. Like now let's hear those facts as they play out for salary and grades and all this stuff. And then we just go through the data that just suggests like that stuff just doesn't make you happy. And, and the students hate it. Like they fight back. Like they try to find random studies on the internet that like conflict this. <laughs> like they just don't really? believe it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, but particularly about the grade stuff where the data are just <laughs> really clear. It's just What's the source of the resistance? Is it like, well, that's true for other people, but not for me? Or is That's it... how it comes up. Yeah, it, yeah, that's how it comes up. But it's also just like, they like will super question like every court like well it's only a correlation of like point three you know like they i'm like oh now y'all are statistical geniuses because yeah. <laughs> like the one data point that conflicts with your intuition but anyway um so we go through all that and then we say okay why is that like why is it the case like what parts of your mind are lying to you about that and and there i see like two main things one is like all this stuff about hedonic adaptation like we just get used to stuff so we stop enjoying it as much um, and we don't think in terms of absolutes, we're always thinking relative to some social comparison. And in those cases, the comparisons make us feel crappy. And so then we go through like, okay, what are good things to want? And it, it like sounds cheesy, like it's out of some like bad, like religious organization, like spiritual commercial, but it's like social connection and gratitude and like these healthy practices, like exercising and meditating. And, and another one that they're really bad at, which is time affluence, which is just like having free time to just like do whatever yeah. when it comes up. Um, and then we say, okay, now these are good goals. Like, how do you put those into practice? And that's where the class, like nobody realizes it, but it's just basically a behavioral economics class. We're like, now we're going to do nudges and how you form habits. And here's how you harness the situation. And like, basically, I just give them a full crash course in psychology and decision making. And then... I don't know. Again, allegedly, we're going to end with like, here's how you help the planet. But wait, so is this the first time you've taught it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm making it up from scratch as I go. So um, that yeah. is stressful. So, did you think this would make you happy? Did you? Um, I think <laughs> it is true. So, so my husband, who uh, likes to document whenever I'm being very hypocritical, has like taken to like photographic evidence of times when I'm deeply unhappy because of the course. Like, you know, when other people are having drinks and doing something and I'm in the corner, like doing PowerPoint, he'll like take a picture to snap. And he thinks this is hilariously funny. But, uh, but the good news is like, I have to, the funny thing about the class is I have to, to a certain extent, practice what I preach. Cause like, if it's so obvious that I'm not doing it, it, it doesn't work. And right. so I have been doing all these practices and like, yeah. I mean, I guess the data would suggest so, but it just seems cheesy. Like it's actually healthy. Like I actually feel happier this semester than I probably have in the last like 10 or 15 years, like since being a professor. Yeah, I think. What do you, is it the meditating, the gratitude journal? Is there any way for you to pinpoint? I don't know. What do you I didn't, I didn't do like an ABAB design on it. I mean, part of it is like, it's helping the students. Like yeah. they report that it's helping them. And when you tell the students to be really grateful all the time, they thank you for stuff, right? You see <laughs> the effect of helping them. And that's just like, cheesily giving you meaning and it's just kind of good it's no. also just like super fun to freaking lecture to like a concert hall twice a week like you make a joke yeah. and 1200 people laugh that it's like your guns and roses or something <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, hey should we take a quick break and then come back and continue our discussion uh, yeah hey dave i'm really happy to have audible as our sponsor for this week Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the inter internet. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobooks, publishers, and broadcasters. 
Audible helps you listen to more books by letting you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. Membership includes one free audiobook a month, exclusive sales, and 30% off all regularly priced audiobooks. It has a great listen guarantee. If you didn't like it, you can exchange it. No questions asked. And it has whisper sync for voice, which is very cool. Uh, you can switch back and forth between reading and listening the, to the audiobook on many devices, including Amazon's Kindle, without ever losing your place or missing a word. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. Try books like Shutter Island. This is my recommendation. Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. This is one of my favorite road trip memories. Driving through the back roads of the Gulf in Texas and Louisiana with my wife right after I got my job at the University of Houston, and we were listening to Shutter Island on that trip. Totally gripping combination of mystery and horror. We were freaked out. We had to pull over at one point and just listen because I didn't trust myself driving. It's a great book. I love Dennis Lehane, great Boston mystery author. It's perfect for listening to on a road trip and I'm sure a lot of other occasions. Any recommendations from you? Absolutely. Uh, I love Audible. I've been an Audible member since I think since the year it started. I have recently been on a Norm Macdonald kick and I cannot recommend more. His book, Based on a True Story, which is a treat on Audible because it's read by Norm MacDonald, um, along with uh, his ghostwriter, Tim O'Halloran, uh, who, who chimes in. It is hilarious because you get the deadpan narration from Norm MacDonald himself. Highly recommended. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. So just go to audible.com slash very bad wizards or text very bad wizards, one word, to 500-500 and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Again, that's audible.com slash very bad wizards or text very bad wizards to 500-500 to get started today.
my lane. Fresh seal, no stain. Rob Jean with snow. She said it's made my chain, chain. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, this time is when we like to thank all of our listeners uh, for all of the engagement with us, all of the listener email, the feedback, and the support. It uh, really means a lot to us. Um, we've we've gotten some recent messages that have actually really, really touched us in not, not the dirty way. If you'd like to, to get a hold of us, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. We do. We're still trying very hard to read every single email. Um, some of you don't Succeeding. believe us. Yeah, <laughs> some of you don't believe us and you test us, but we, we really appreciate it. Um, you can tweet to us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. You can also go to join our discussions on, I'd say, the two places that are the best for, for discussion with other listeners, which is the Facebook uh, page, uh, facebook.com slash verybadwizards, or the Reddit subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram as well uh just search for very bad wizards and if you would like to support us in as we say in the more tangible in the in the more tangible ways a touchy way in the touchy way uh you <laughs> can find all the ways to support us uh by going to our support page verybadwizards.com/support um there you can see a link for our patreon we really 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 appreciate all of our patreon supporters um, who who keep keep us going and keep our lights on. You can also support us by doing a couple of other things. You can either donate directly to us on PayPal via the button. And finally, you can do your shopping via Amazon uh, by clicking through our Amazon button first and shopping as you would normally. We get a little piece of it. Thank you so much uh, to, to all of our listeners and all of your support. Uh, yeah, thanks. Let me just add a couple other ways that you could help us specifically me one is by pre-ordering my book pre-ordering my book why honor matters oh, yeah. i should have said that apparently there they the basic book wants to do some sort of pre-order campaign where people will get free books or signed books or something and maybe it'll link up to patreon not sure yet but stay tuned for the details on that please pre-order i've heard that helps also, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but rate us on iTunes. That's a right. good way of helping other people find the podcast who haven't found it already. Thank you. Back to Lori. So we should right. say I don't think we've. It's the most popular course in Yale's history. Yeah, right? that's right. I beat out Peter Salovey. Peas, you'll be happy to know. He's, I'm very he's happy. His old PhD plus, advisor. Plus, he, he only we we used to call him Easy A Salovey, um, and that. <laughs> surprisingly had an influence on how many people enrolled in intro psych but mm -hmm. it also was not that accurate so it just led to oh. misery at the end of the semester when people like you know, you're gonna give us easy a <laughs> yale students getting an a minus is like a damn near riot on your hands yeah yeah which has been um, funny for this course because like all their instincts to complain about grades are the same if not much more crazy not in the 90s but now and but they know they're not supposed to right because right, they know right, the right. data and so they're yeah. like in this in, moment of like, I know I'm not supposed to care about my grade, but why did I get two points off for this question? So uh, let me ask you this. The, the, I, I think being in the thick of the, some of like the psychological research, I, I don't, you know, I lecture on happiness in intro psych. I, you know, I'm familiar enough with this stuff, but I was just talking to um, somebody and even though they had had, they, they were trained in behavioral science, they genuinely were like, wait, how do you measure happiness? 
Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's what a cute question. We ask people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one, I was wondering if, if the students, like, it seems like one of the first things to get out of the way because, like, it, it's yep. almost like one of those areas where people will resist you, where yep. they'll say, like, how do you know that I'm happy or not? And this, the second area that I, I could see people resisting is, or at least I do sometimes when I say I'm not doing this to be happy, motherfucker, leave me alone. Yeah, yeah Like yeah, I am yeah. like in, in the heat of writing, uh, you know, sleeping three hours to write a brand new lecture for a course like that. I'm like, yeah. well, it's a mistake to think that I'm pursuing happiness in anything but the most broad kind of, you know, tautological sense. But like right. I am pursuing misery because I have goals that aren't to be happy. So on the first one, you know, the, teaching this class, I have to teach it based on the science that we have. And it would be fantastic if measures of happiness were better than the ones when I opened the journals. I'm like, wait, this is what we have. This is, you know, two items. The, the good news about it, though, is like if you think about what it means to be happy in all the domains to have a self-report, this one seems reasonable because yeah. like basically what it means for me to be happy is like you ask me like, oh, Laura, you have a semester. And I'm like, yeah, this semester, I'm totally happy. Right. So it's like on the one hand, it seems like a BuzzFeed quiz. But like the flip side is like, of all things to be BuzzFeed quizzy, this is it. Like what matters isn't like how much cortisol I have or like, I know. like what my freaking brain is doing. Like what matters is like yeah. I say, like I'm actually freaking happy this semester. So, Wait, so and, what self-reports are you using? Is it just literally like rate your happiness on a scale of one to ten? We do different ones. Um, the the Many of the measures of subjective well-being try to capture two things. So they capture what they call like a cognitive evaluation, which is basically like, how do you feel about your life? Like, what's your belief about your life? Like your belief about how it's going. Like and life that's satisfaction, often like, life satisfaction on the world economic uh, exactly. survey. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally the question of all things considered, how do you think your life is going? Like very well, well, not so well, really badly. Very, you know, like it's literally that question. Um, but again, like it sounds stupid, but like that's actually what I want to maximize is like how you think your life is going. Other kinds of surveys try to get at the more affective part of it. So it's like, what are you experiencing lots of positive emotion and not that much negative emotion? And those are done slightly better where you can do it with like experience sampling where I pin you and you don't really know what I'm asking, but I just have you fill out a bunch of different emotion words, right? And so it's trying to kind of track emotion in the moment. But like, those are the, be I mean, these are the measures that are like in science papers. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not... Yeah, well, it's unclear how like what a better measure would look like. You know, it's yeah. like like even when you're talking about like the biological measures, the the only way we know that if they are good measures or not is to see whether or not they relate to the face valid. How happy are you? Right, right, right. I mean, there, they, there are there's some decent psychometrics. So like there's some papers that it correlates with like how your friends rate your happiness, or if I look at you know I do text analysis on your diaries that you didn't know I was going to look at, and that like maps on. So like. When we have good other measures, they tend to correlate pretty highly. But again, it's like what we want to maximize is you being like, hey, Pease, are you happy? And you're like, yeah. yeah. Like that's whatever you're, you're using to answer that is what I want to measure. And it seems like your self-report is actually pretty good. I mean, it's – I don't know. It's complicated because I, I have a part of me that thinks that the kind of thing that you want to maximize is something that – it may not be possible to measure through mm. any through a kind of self-report. And I guess it would be something along the lines of flourishing, being yeah. fulfilled. I, I think we often know 
at the extremes. Like we know right. when a life is not fulfill, fulfilling and we know when we're just everything feels like it's clicking on all cylinders for us. But then in the middle, it's sometimes a little hard to gauge. And I don't know if we're going to be the best judges, especially in the moment of yeah. what level of flourishing we are. And that gets to Pease's other question, right? Which is like, what kind of happiness are you maximizing? So this comes up a lot. So I cover some of the data on whether or not kids make you happy. And like, basically the data is like in the moment, like kids basically suck. Like if, right. even if you do these like more careful experience sampling kind of things where you don't realize what I'm asking you, like yeah. kids are basically as bad as like commuting to work, which is like the lowest yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. it's lower than most of our daily activities, but like kids provide people with lots of meaning and like, I mean, just mapping on to like me not having kids, but this course, like much of the in the moment dealing with the course is like a huge pain in the butt, but like, it feels really good at the end of the day yeah. when I'm like teaching this course. And so it's, I think that there is one sense in which some people really do care about their day-to-day -day reportable happiness and they want to maximize that. And, and, but it, I, I agree with you, Tamler, and that there are some things that, that probably are hard to measure, but that doesn't mean that if you are constantly reporting that you're miserable, that that might yeah. not be a thing that you want to change. Yeah. Um, I mean, important. the other thing is that some of these practices are about like not missing out on what's good about that stuff, right? Like one of the reasons that the kids right. are a pain in the ass is because you forget the meaning part until you're like primed with the question of like, you know, should you have kids? But there are ways to like break that hedonic adaptation to like notice it in the moment. And these are just these like things that sound super cheesy and like, how could they possibly work? But things like gratitude right. and yeah. this other technique that I love because it's, it's a very stoic technique. So it's like old school philosophy, but it's this thing called negative visualization where you imagine like what life would be like without it. So, you know, the stoics thought you should start every morning by like thinking like, what if my husband left me or I got in a car accident? Or, like my legs don't work anymore. And like just all this bad stuff. And then when you see the good things in your life, you'll remember them. But if like every parent did a 10 minute meditation <laughs> about like today, my kid got like shot up in a school, you know, like horrible yeah. thing. The moment yeah. you see your kids, you're not like at, you know, commuting level of sadness dealing with them like you're excited. Right. I, I don't know who these people are that have such miserable kids because my kid was never uh, was never <laughs> like that where they just made me. I also think uh, something Valerie Tiberius said to me in the in an interview I did with her is really wise on this point. It's that I think what makes a lot of people miserable with kids is that they have these competing things like work. And right. so it's this constant yeah. conflict between do I spend time with my kid and do I devote time to my work? What Valerie said is I think that there is a way to make that conflict less of a conflict, which right. is to be able to shift perspectives so that when you're with your kid you're or with your family, you are with them. Uh, you're not yeah. constantly thinking about work. You're not constantly. And then yeah. when you're at work, you're at work. And to be able to do that. And it seems like some of the practices that you are recommending would allow us to be able to do that. Because I think that's that is one of the stressful things is yeah. that feeling of guilt that you're that either you're constant. Yeah, working. I remember yeah, yeah. constant totally. guilt. No matter where I was, I was feeling guilty about something else. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's getting back to this issue of like why this generation might be right. more messed up. There's that, right? Like just, if you just think of your phone, like everything's just, a trade-off. Like, everything's a trade-off. It's yeah. a full FOMO device, right? Like I could be learning anything, any language. I could be like finding out any fact about the Real Housewives like of Beverly Hills or Atlanta or whatever. Like there's just so much other crap you can be doing. Like 
There's, yeah. I think it, Liz Dunn has this new paper that just literally having your phone at dinner makes the dinner. Like you don't have to answer it. It just has to be physically present near you and it like ruins the dinner. And it's yeah. like, that's because like my husband's super interesting, but he's not like infinite knowledge of everything, you know, like right. all the time. Right. And that's the trade off we face. <laughs> Right. It's like having IMDB while you're watching a movie is Oh, I know. It's yeah. a curse because every time you see an actor that's vaguely familiar, you now know that either you, you could find out the name of that actor and you and and then but now you're out of the flow of the movie. And well, and that's the weird thing is that it feels like I am happier that I can like actually have that information so in the moment this so this is your mind lying to you like the, your mind lies to you all the time right this, i know this is the most i I, I agree although in the moment maybe a measure of happiness would get like so amazon oh, yeah, right yeah. like the amazon app has this amazing feature like if you're on a touch screen <clears throat> anytime you're watching a tv show or a video and you touch it it shows you the profiles of the actors that are currently on the oh, screen i hate and that. it's it's like amazing <laughs> but i'm like touching that thing like like all the time like i'm constantly like figuring out oh that's that guy oh that's that girl and and i have to believe that i am not consuming the art the way the artist intended right, right, right. right? or like, mind wandering in this way yeah, it's like that yeah, yeah. i mean this is the other thing when you teach the course and you look at what our technological lives are like is that like a lot of technology just actively breaks the stuff that make us really happy right yeah. so social connection if you think of what apps have done think of like uber okay like nick epley basically has this stuff when we think of social connection we think we want to like hang out with our kids or our family but nick epley's work shows that like just talking to the barista at the coffee yeah. shop is is not like just as good but it's pretty good and it like yeah. bumps up subjective well-being in these rich ways and like technology has just like chipped away at all these tiny ways like you, know, you can buy groceries online. You don't have to talk to anybody. Like you get your food from Uber Eats. Like it's yeah. just like such subtle ways. And we predict that, right? Like, do I want to like go talk to the barista? No, I'd rather just order it on my phone because my forecast is like that's going to suck for me. It's going to suck for the barista. But like actually that's just our minds lying to us. Like it right. sucks. I don't know why yeah. we don't have minds that deliver us accurate information. Philosopher Tambler, like why do why <laughs> minds... I like the analogy with visual illusions. Like you can explain the illusion and it's interesting, but you're still going to suffer the illusion once you yeah. know the explanation behind it and once you know even the facts behind it. So I'm assuming that's also true for happiness stuff. Yeah. So how do you ward off the possibility that the students are going to be, as you're describing this, yep. it's going to seem like, you know, an epiphany, this come to Jesus moment. But then afterwards, they're just going to go back and keep doing the same things that they were al yeah. always doing. I mean, this is why the course, I mean, everyone acts like it's sort of a course on positive psychology, but most of it is not that. Like most, the front end is positive psychology where you get the goals right, but then the whole end part of the class is like all this stuff on how you nudge your behavior and how you use the situation to your own advantage, right? So part of it is like, I give them assignments, like there's a week, they have to meditate, right? It's just part of the assignment. Like one out of every four students at Yale is doing that. So there's like some social support there and there's this stuff. And so like, there's ways that you can kind of hack your situation and hack your habits to do it better, but you have to like do that part of it. And so one of the things that went viral is I, I, and when I started the class, so everyone thought the class was going to be this huge gut, right? Because it's like about happiness and I assigned them to like meditate and all this crap. 
and 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 so many students were taking it. I think that like reinforced the fact that it was going to be you know easy A <laughs> easy A salivate kind of class. <laughs> and so I started this hashtag hardest class at Yale. And I said that because I'm like, which was, which was totally went viral. Also one in four, maybe more was another great hashtag for the class. Yeah, I was just about to make that joke. So it's, yeah, that, uh, that one they got really excited about, but, um, yeah. but I did hardest class at Yale because actually like two things are hard about this stuff. One is like, you have to accept that your mind is lying to you. And that's really freaking hard. Like you have to just be like, my intuitions about this are wrong. Like, I know it would feel better. I, I believe it would feel better to just like go on Facebook right now and take a break. But like, actually, that's not what I want. Actually, I want to like go meditate or do yoga or like, you know, exercise or something like I have the wrong intuitions. It's crazy. And it's so hard to believe the data over what your mind is implicitly motivating you to do. Second reason it's hard is like to actually do this stuff. You have to do this stuff. Take exercise. Like that's people's main like New Year's resolution. But like nobody does it right. Like, like. It just sucks to make these changes. Yeah. Exercise is one of those things that has the most reliable association with every conceivable good outcome you could ever imagine. I'm convinced of the data, and yet I sit on my ass. Right. Even (laughs) Megan Kelly, when I was on the Today Show, and she was like, what are your tips? I was like, exercise. She was like, oh, exercise. I'm like, Megan, you weigh like 84 pounds. You clearly exercise every day. Like, why are we having this this fraud? And it it sucks. And 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 then there's the reverse, right? Like, like when I get like 10 minutes of a free moment, right? Like you guys are 10 minutes late to call me for this podcast. I know what I would have done. Like I would have gone on Twitter. I would have gone on Facebook. <laughs> like I would have done some or check my email. I would have done all these stupid things that wouldn't make me happy. I wouldn't have been like, that's 10 minutes where I can just watch my breath. And yeah. the data suggests that or just like stretch in the room or something. We need little like heroin pills that we can take when we do these other good things that like get us addicted. Um, yeah. Do you do any kind of pharmacology kind of experimental? <laughs> no. So pharm- many students though are like the like stoner kids are like, could we talk about the positive effects of acid? I was like, no, dude, like this is already that class. Like, can we not? Like, <laughs> just go full embrace the <laughs> well there's a joke that like the students like now call me like a cult leader and like there's like all these like people Ooh. make buttons at yale and like they talk about the class as a cult and so i'm only a few steps away from the bad kool-aid i think on campus, so. <laughs> is the power going to your head at all uh i'm trying not to let it but you know we'll see. i mean it doesn't go to your head because like it's like I-, I haven't become a good like it'd be one thing if i like was all Zen and like accepted this stuff. But it's really humbling when your own intuitions don't change. Like I'm teaching this freaking class and like, you know, I hadn't, I, until this morning I hadn't like yoga in a week. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, <laughs> I have to say though, you do have great Jesus hair. Like I feel Thank like you'd you. be a good Thank cult you. leader. Thank <laughs> you. So one of the activities, and we can talk about some of this. So you, you have these actual activities on your course, um, including say measuring happiness levels yeah, in, yeah. in week one. Uh, week two, Tamler and I decided we would do, we would do this as well, and that is finding your signature strengths, yeah. um, and uh, which is a uh, self report test that sort of ranks your virtues. They're very nice because they don't tell you that you're bad at anything; they just put it lower. And the, the, the whole hope is that they're ones that you're good at, and that's easy for you to use. And when you use them, you'll feel good. But then there are ones that like you should work on because it's kind of bad. Not yeah, exactly. Things, yeah. Yeah. And so I was yeah. thinking you could pre-post yourself on humility. Um, nah. Oh, that's see. good. That's good. <laughs> Actually, what I've gone up in, it's so it's so cheesy, is like kindness and like loving. Like those ones I've like bumped up on. And I bumped down on love of learning. I don't know what that means. but <laughs> So guess what? Guess what my top strength is? Social intelligence. No. Uh, humor. I mean, obviously. Cause yeah. So funny, uh, that right? was my second guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, but was... social intelligence is my third. I think it's justice and then social intelligence. Yes. So the deal is that there are 24 strengths. The claim is that they're, they're universally valued. They vary across people. Some people are really good at them. Some people are less good at them. And the idea is if you, if you find the ones that you're good at and you tend to focus on using them, even if you just frame it like you're using it that way, then you're supposed to like get happy. I'm I'm social intelligence and humor one and nice. two for me. We're like the, yeah. we're so simpatico. I know. And then my lowest <laughs> ones are spirituality and bravery. Mine is uh, hope and spirituality. Hope. <laughs> <laughs> spirituality is number twenty four, but bravery is number twenty one. I definitely was. I was trying to come across as more humble, and I think that docked my humility score. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what do you think my top three are? Dave, well, you just you, said it was. You said it was justice. No, oh, no, no, no. That was no, seven. That was low. Uh, um, I think you're gonna be wisdom, love of learning, and then not like a, a people oriented one. Those would be my two. They'll be in your top five. I bet, Pamela. None of those are in my top. Really? Five. Uh, what are your top ones? Okay, I think uh, judgment, creativity. Oh yeah, I feel like that. And zest. Those are my guesses for you. Oh, that's nice. I was hoping to get higher on that. So creativity is my number one. Nice. Humor, I'm a little chagrined 24. to note that no. neither of you guessed that that would be in my top three, but that was number two. I don't know why. Nice. I guess. That's and my then number love is, is three. Aww. So yeah. what? I didn't tell you my number three. I'm social intelligence, humor, and my number three is kindness. Oh. <laughs> that's why we're all very simpatico on the whole humor kindness it's true yeah, i think that's why well, you're good, you're uh, good let's guy. not get carried away i think <laughs> kindness for me is all the way down to 16 uh, <laughs> yeah. so, let's yeah. stop sucking each other but too. here's the thing so so the so the the activity we do for this later in the semester is we, we make the students do a strengths date um, which sounds really cheesy, but the idea is like you pick, you find somebody else that you're going to do something with, like a romantic partner or a friend or something, and you pick strengths that you both have, and you're like, how can we do something novel with those things? Mm. So like for creativity, you're like, we're going to have a paint night, like me and Pease do a paint night, or like humor, like we're going to just watch some cheesy comedy or something. And it's like, the idea is like, as you kind of do things together where you're both executing your strengths, it's like awesome for both of you, and you do it together, and it's like... Yeah, that's cool. So setting aside spirituality, what is the lowest one on all of our lists? Have you guys already said Is spirituality yours? just the lowest on everyone? On it's all not it's it's actually my second Stu- I have the I have the students do it and actually a lot of religious students get that. Stu- students for whom faith is really important in their lives. It's, it's like, like the really one. high actually. Yeah. But for um, us three it was pretty low. Like it was uh, the yeah. pen- penultimate one for you, Lori? Spirituality was my lowest. It was for me. Your penultimate. Yeah, so mine lowest, yours penultimate. Uh, okay, my lowest. So number twenty four was spirituality. Number twenty three was hope, and number twenty two is yeah. perseverance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my my third lowest. My third lowest is self regulation, which I was also like, That's yep, my totally <laughs> with you. <laughs> my absolute lowest. Like I think my wife would say that this is my lowest prudence. Mm. Yeah. It was my absolute lowest. Uh, I am more spiritual than I am prudent. Oh wow! And then humility. I don't. I didn't. I don't remember like thinking that I was answering so. But that was that's my third <laughs> lowest. And I then this... teamwork, which is another one I was impressed because oh, I, yeah. I don't think I'm a good team player. Ah, uh, really? I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so that it's is... it's like tracking. It's tracking something that your friends and your partners see and stuff. But but the yeah. key is like if you use if you frame stuff this way, it feels more meaningful to you. So I have a question for you, Laurie, about. The, a quote from your syllabus. So of course, you the philosopher is say... like pulling, like, you say, and I quote, it was a syllabus, dude. I had to turn it in by like some Thursday. I was like, no, no uh, yeah. Ahead, I mean, like, I'm the last person who can. I had my, my last syllabus, I the numbers didn't add up right, like the percentages. <laughs> they only <laughs> So I, yeah. I'd be the last person to criticize you for not proofreading <laughs> your syllabus. Right, right. No, so here's what you say you say, psychology has a lot to say about fixing human problems from the big global ones to the tiny personal ones. That said, empirically oriented psychologists aren't often as creative as they should be about applying their findings to real world problems. Yeah. This course is my attempt to critically synthesize what psychologists have learned so far about making our lives better, both on a global and local scale. <laughs> I sound like such a twat, but go ahead, Tamara. What's the question? Local. I guess my question is, if I have to be skeptical for a second, is maybe the reason why empirically oriented psychologists aren't as creative about applying their findings to the real world is that it's very hard to apply lab findings to the messy complexity of the real world. And so I'm wondering how that bridge how you cross that bridge in the course. I guess you've mentioned the life hacks, but how else do you uh, cross that bridge? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in some cases that's true. Like there's some cases where we just don't have enough data to apply things right now. And in the class, I try to be really careful about that. So, so sometimes I think we just, you know, things are evolving in terms of what we know. But sometimes it's like we're just loath to like, apply shit and say what we mean right i mean positive psychology already like sounds really dumb. like if i called the class positive psychology not uh, 1200 students wouldn't take it right but really positive psychology is about the good life it's about happiness but, like no psychologists study happiness they study subjective well-being yeah. which like i get it like i get that it sounds foofy but it means like people don't know what the hell you're talking about right so I, so I do think like sometimes the terms we use just like have people think like that's just not going to be relevant to me. But if you think for like a nanosecond, you're like, you know, just take take some of the stuff we covered in like about social comparisons and reference points. Like I just believe all the behavioral economic stuff on reference points. I believe that we frame things like I believe that we pay more attention to stuff that's worse than stuff that's better. And like if you know that you can just apply it in your life. But people aren't often thinking about how to do that. I mean, they do it in the decision-making domain about like stocks and crap, but not like how not to get bored with your partner or how not to feel bad on Instagram because somebody like has a better bikini than you or something, right? Like these are all things we can just apply. Here, I think we could talk about um, Mike and Mike Norton and Liz Dunn's work on on money that is good field studies. You know, these aren't lab, these aren't just lab studies. These are actually getting out there and having people do this, do stuff, this yeah. right? Which is the finding that giving, using your money to to do something for somebody else just makes you happier than yeah. using it for yourself. So, like buying somebody else a coffee with your Starbucks card um, that you just got just makes you happier than than not. And that's one of those cases where you you know maybe some people are like can intuit their way to that, but but a lot of people can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Same thing with some of the Nick the Nick Epley stuff on social connection. So he has people on the train forecast like 
how happy are you going to be if you spend this whole train ride talking to somebody and everybody forecasts like that would be super miserable. I'll get no work done. This will be bad. But actually when you have people do it in the field, these are field studies too, like people on the train, they like actually feel better. So like, I think there's some, I mean, that's the other part of it too, right? Is that like the flip side of the, like, you know, maybe our research isn't good enough to apply in the real world. There's a flip side where people say like, all the stuff you're telling people is stuff that everybody already knew. Like, why did they need a freaking NIH grant and a neuroimaging scanner to like tell us this? Like we knew exercise, obviously exercise helps people. Like obviously being nice to people is like good, like meditation kind of foofy, but probably a good thing. Like Buddha's been doing it for so long. Right. Like, so then there's the flip side of like, why do you actually need empirical data to tell us this stuff? And I think you do because our forecasts just suck. Like our forecasts are totally wrong. So there's stuff that we're going to, that that's going to be helping us that we're missing like a lot of the time. I don't know if you do need the neuroimaging data. All right, fine. <laughs> I only do a couple neuroscience studies in the class. There's one actually, and I do it for meditation because they're data that like meditation actually increases gray matter. Like, yeah. there's no better practice than like spending a half hour a day meditating. Yeah, have you started yet, Dave? Uh, you know, I've done a few headspace uh, days, but again, I'm bad at the discipline part of like, uh, mm. but yeah, I do enjoy it. I, I hope that I incorporate it more and more. I recommend um, having 1200 students who like ask you on the street like, about your own <laughs> meditation practice. You know like, what? I think, I, I, yeah, I should teach it. a course on exercise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, Shout out to Elizabeth Dunn, who does those uh, happiness studies. Oh, my God. Tamler. But what you were just saying about the brain stuff, uh, she 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 gets these questions about brain science and she's gets tired of of sort of like telling people why they don't say as much as you think they do. So she just recently tweeted out uh, to just listen to this segment of a very bad Wizards episode. <laughs> Oh yeah. She said between nice. between minute whatever seventeen and twenty four, just listen to them. You guys should just make a clip that's like on YouTube that like people who send mean YouTube clips when you say something dumb, like we can just yeah, it's just like, yeah. Here. <laughs> Speaking of have, dumb we're... things, I said <laughs> it's not Will McCaskill who quit. His... Oh, egg in, I know egg in the face for you. Uh, yeah, that it was someone else. It was a guy named Matt Page. Uh, to trust a listener so that was a person it does that Gross. person doesn't exist it's just not will mccaskill uh, yeah. sorry laurie this is about the last episode we were talking about utilitarianism ah. and uh and see tamler you fell prey to a very real memory phenomenon that's been studied in the lab which is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> i could have sworn it's He's true giving you lists of will McCaskill. <laughs> right. i was priming <laughs> you i was like flashing it subliminally <laughs> This week's episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you in part by Casper. What is Casper? I'm sure you've heard of them by now, but Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. What makes them so good? A few things. Casper mattresses are designed to provide supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies by mimicking human curves. The experts at Casper have worked tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. The original Casper mattress which is what I have and what my daughter has, combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. I've had a lot of mattresses, and I can easily say that Casper is the best mattress I've ever owned, and I'm very happy that I bought one even before they became our sponsor. If you're at that point in your life where you're considering buying a new mattress, I urge you to try Casper out. 
You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. What does that mean? Literally, you can sleep on that mattress for 100 nights, and if you decide that you don't want it or you didn't like it, you can return it at any time within those 100 days. If you do choose to buy one, you'll get $50 towards select mattresses if you visit casper.com slash badwizards and use the code badwizards at checkout. Seriously, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Again, support the Very Bad Wizards podcast by visiting casper.com slash verybadwizards for $50 towards select mattresses. Use the code badwizards at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. We'd like to thank Casper for supporting Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're here with Lori Santos. Given that the last part of the course, well, the second to last part of the course is how you can help apply the lessons that you've learned from the empirical research to improving your life. Setting aside meditation, which we've talked about, and I guess a gratitude journal, which we've also talked about, what are some of the other ways that you've been able to improve your life, hack your life, that drawn from some of this research? Yeah, yeah. Um, so some are about social connection, like explicitly having time where you make yourself talk to people. Like, it sounds really stupid, but the, like, talk to the barista in the coffee shop, talk to people on the street, like, the data just suggests that you forecast that that's going to feel crappy, but, like, actually, it feels really good. Um, that's one that students don't like to do, but then they report is, like, actually really positive. So what do you um, do for that? You just... <laughs> legit talk to people, Taylor. Like, you're, like, in line. You're, like, on a train, and you're, like, you know, nice day, isn't it? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm a, I'm a Yankee. I'm from the Northeast. I don't know how to do this well. But, like, apparently, if you just talk to people, it's, like, good. Um, we do that so down here, by the way. Yeah, in Texas, you should know. It's, like, what those people do, like, the Texans, when they talk to you and stuff. That's, like... It's awesome. Yeah. So you just, I'm just trying to pin down like what, what, what this is. You just commit to, I'm going to say something to the barista. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Or just like, if you're in a situation, like actually speak to people. Um, Nick Epley has taken this hardcore. So he, he realized that in his own life, the reason he didn't do that, like in lines and stuff was because he had a smartphone. Right. So as soon as you have, like you're in line, you could talk to the person, but instead you could check anything on the internet. And so. And so he's actually downgraded his phone to like a flip phone, which is like super hard to find. So he can't, he doesn't have the distraction of being on the internet. And he reports that that makes it really easier for people, for him to talk to people on the train and stuff. Cause it's like, you're not checking your email and all this other stuff. So, anyway, you know, that's so. actually a really clear case of prediction error on my part all the time, which is when I'm traveling like on airplanes, I really don't want to engage in conversation. And almost mm -hmm. every time that I do, it's fine. Except for yep. when one guy tried to like give me a massage, which was creepy. <laughs> but um, but what I do is I my prediction error leads me to pre-commit to keeping headphones on all the time yep. and shutting everybody out of the world. And it's just I know I I know like that it's making me less happy to shut yeah. myself off. But I can't get myself to like I can't be bothered. Part of it for me is like I mispredict what the other people think. Like, I might actually feel yeah. like, oh, it would be fun to talk to this person. I'm kind of bored. But then I'm like, oh, that person will find me super annoying yeah. or like they'll be annoyed. And like, yeah. but Nick's data suggests that not only does it make you feel happy, it actually makes the other person feel happy, too. Unless you do the kind of creepy massage thing, which is <laughs> yeah, I was illegal. Say but, you know, if you like refrain from the illegal stuff and just do the normal talking, <laughs> then it's cool. Um, so that's one social connection. Another one that we just did this exercise in class, which is crazy, um, was called time affluence. 
And this was like my most embarrassing like success as a professor. So as I've told you, it's a new prep for me. Like I'm also head of college. I also like run a lab. I also like just, I'm a human. And so I knew that like right before spring break, I was going to run out of content and I was just going to die. And so I tried to get like all my colleagues to like give guest lectures. Like I had Hetty, I was like, oh, can you come give guest lectures? She's like, oh, I'll do it after break. I'll do it after break. And so I was like, shit, like I'm just going to run out of content. And so I was like, wait a minute, what if I could cancel class, but have that be some sort of like, like principle that I could teach them, right? And I was like, oh shit, like I'm doing this lecture on time affluence. What if I instead of the lecture on time affluence, I cancel class and I'm like, Ugh. now you have an hour of time affluence you didn't know you had before. Like, what would you want to do with it? And like, that's the whole lecture. And so, so what we did was like, we printed out So I'm like, this is genius, but it wasn't like, I'm going to teach them to support less, but I was like, fuck, I'm never going to be able to like, finish class. Anyway, so we print out these flyers. So when they go to class, the TFs hand them this flyer and the flyer says, you by the know, way, TF like, is Yale for TA. Oh, the TA, yes, the teaching <laughs> assistant, right? And so we hand them this flyer and the flyer says, today's lecture is about time affluence where we teach you the importance of having a little bit of time. I thought it would be awesome to actually show you what this feels like. Congratulations, there's no class today. That means right now you have an hour free that you didn't expect. And the only rule is that you can't do like work. You can't study for a midterm. You have to do something that's a practice that we learn in class that's positive. So like you can like explore something new. You could go to the museum. You could hang out with a friend. You could nap. You could exercise. You could meditate. You just like have to do something new. I want to and see so, the Pornhub data for New Haven. The, on that, <laughs> <day>. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't in the uh, wasn't in the list. Um, but basically, so kids get to class. It's it's right in the middle of midterm season too, right? So they're super stressed out. They get to class. They get the paper, the, the flyer, and some of them are like, "Oh my god, really?" Three students burst into tears. Nine of them spontaneously hugged me or one of the TFs. Like, just like, thank you. Like, thank you so much. And most of them, like, I thought they were all just going to go study for their wow. midterm. But most of them actually, like, did one of the things in class. And so at the end of it, I was like, if you want, send me an email to, like, tell me what you did. And, like, some kids, like, many of them went to new places on campus. So they went to the art museum at Yale or they went to the botanical garden for the first time. A lot of them, like, met up with friends and, like, got a bubble tea. Um, I'm going to steal this idea. Are, a set of students who were in acapella like went to the recording studio and made up a song and like sent me a song. Wow. And then one set of students, which were particularly awesome, decided to hike up East Rock, which is this like state park that's kind of nearby. But they met up with other students who were like also obviously students from my class who were also hiking there. And so then they like became friends and started chatting. They hiked down the hill and went to this coffee shop that's like a new coffee shop for them that happened to be having their three-year anniversary. So they're giving away like free coffee and free treats. And then at this point, it's now been like three hours that they've taken off. And so the students are starting to feel guilty because they have midterms. But it was the day of the big snowstorm, so they canceled class. So while the students are getting the free coffee and pastries, they get the email that their econ midterm was canceled for the next day. And so they emailed me like, this is like fortifying my status as cult leader here because they're like, how did you get the class canceled? It's amazing. But anyway, the point is like these freaking students for the first time all semester took a damn hour off to just like chill and do something fun. And like all of them reported like, like this is like now a memory that they're going to have for their like, undergraduate career. And like That's embarrassingly, awesome. it came out of like, I just didn't have any content for that day. So but it was planned all along. It was planned all along. It was planned <laughs> deeply all along. But the point is like that, that is time affluence, right? Like we could, at any point, those students could give themselves an hour off. Like that's why I announced at the next class. I was like, at any point, y'all could just skip class and just not show up. And yes, you have to take the consequences for that. But like, you can give yourself some time affluence. It's just we never, ever do. Like, 
I am a natural genius at this, and I always have been. And I don't know why. Because you're creative, like, Tamara. I was an only child for 14 years. Maybe it's that, but I just i I am affluent with myself when it comes to time. I make I make time for that kind of stuff. It's like you, I need it, and I can see it in my daughter too. She needs it. She just needs that time where she's not she's not being pulled in any direction, and she is in charge of her own time and but that's also huge as a parent that you let her do that like that that's the other flip side of all these bad strategies is i feel like parents are constantly telling students they're reinforcing these things that don't actually make us happy right like things like grades and all these accolades and all these clubs and things like i think it's countercultural as a parent to just let your kid like hang out and play and not schedule them honestly like yeah no i try to get her to not do like, like all these things like i try to make sure she's not stretched too thin as a student yeah. <laughs> again this yeah. is I, i'm really bad at a lot of the things that you talk about but i just happen to be good at this one i i also just don't want to drive my daughter <laughs> to daughter all of these you. activities <laughs> yeah, <there's that> too. <laughs> yeah. commuting almost is like if you combine commuting and taking care of the kids it's a, it's a hefty hefty lift yeah but now you're right like the the way in which you know i was talking about sitting in on admissions like when you look when you look at all of the things that these kids have done and what what is required to get into school to many schools it is like you couldn't design a better route to anxiety and and unhappiness yeah. and yeah. and early earlier than normal depression. It's it's crazy. Like it's at the point where now when I talk to students, most of my advice to students is to do less and to calm yeah. down and yeah. not not worry. Like I want to give them all. I want a bowl of Xanax in my in my office. And they, there's a lot of pressure in the universities, like do this internship, mm -hmm. do apply for that fellowship, apply for that grant, because it's yeah. good for the universities when the students do that. Yeah. And I so so I'm, I also uh, I'm just telling the students, look, no, it's just going to stress you out and give you one other thing that you have to do. And um, right. But it's hard to convince them, you know, it's because they're getting f 15 other people tell them the other thing. You know. Right. And especially like at these elite institutions like Yale, it's like they've been reinforced like that is their entire reinforcement history. So when you're like grades don't matter, it's like, wait, but like what else does? So do you think that we should be more responsible? Do you think that there is a room for a sort of university level policy change where we don't emphasize this stuff because we're the ones creating this right like there's no, obviously there's more students than ever and a lot of you have to distinguish between them and so it's easy to say this one had four extracurriculars and this one had three but like is yeah. there something we can do so that we're not creating this gnarly incentive to be fucking harlow's monkey they're like the wire mother monkeys like rocking back and forth sometimes you know? i mean honestly i think i mean part of it's our fault i'm counting on you guys to fix this by the time eliza applies to college because she'll have been <laughs> otherwise i will have fucked her she's gonna write yeah. her extra crew and be like time affluence <laughs> exactly. like extracurricular no but but that's but that's sad right like i mean this is like yeah i think i think i think universities have to do better i think well i mean for two reasons one is like we are causing this, right? Like yeah. if you, the, oh, that 2009 survey about the thing that stresses them out the most, you would think it'd be like social relationships or all this stuff. It's actually just academic stress. It's just them worrying about grades. Like that's the main reason they feel overwhelmed and anxious and all this stuff. That's what they report. And that's like on us, right? I mean, 
I mean, in some literal way, I was going to say like the three of us are at a position where we have tenure and 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 enough influence that we could take some of this to to admissions and we probably yeah. won't. But like, I, I'm kind of curious as to what we could do. Yeah. I mean, I think we don't need to grade them like we do. Right. And the, the, just the presence of grades causes them to like not learn as well. I mean, all the data suggests it's like you don't learn as well. You're more anxious you're basically trying to pick an assignment that's like not the most creative thing or the hardest thing. Like if grades is the thing that matters, you just want to like find the easiest way to get the best grade. Right. And like we've created an entire culture of that, like at these elite institutions. So what do you do though? I mean, this is a, I teach a frigging 1200 person class where I can do an like mine. No, no, but it's hard. Like, I mean, people have given me shit about this with the class. Like, no, but, but I mean like with grading, cause I've thought of this and I, th- I think I've gotten, I've, ha- I've had to assign less work and become, yeah. but at a certain point it's like you're, it's a, you're now not teaching them as much and so like but probably I think it has to start earlier I mean I think it has to start with the kids we're admitting I mean the the students we're admitting are already obsessed with grades like the students we're admitting I I really feel that in the last 10 years even at Yale that we're actually getting less creative less rigorous less kind of it creates a culture by selecting people of a certain ilk right um, we get more grade complaints. Like, uh, you know, though, I, I disagree. You seem to this is on the syllabus, too, that it's every that this is just at Yale. I just don't think that's right. No, in no, term- I think it's everywhere. No, no, no. I but it's... I mean, like, I think that this is that the anxieties can be somewhat different. Like, I don't think the Houston kids are as grade obsessed, but it's the same anxieties. It's the same yeah. overtaxed. One. Yeah. I mean, I actually think so. One, so we've developed this like Coursera version of the class, which is like a super, it's like five lectures long. It's like a super short version of the class that we're just giving away for free. That was intended for college audiences, right? Because it's based on this class. But I'm actually thinking of developing a version of the content for like high school or middle school kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the science of psychology is like, you know, like middle school kid can understand like how happy you. <laughs> it's not like like rich nerd science. We even have you know. scales that just have we happy even have faces. Scales, on. like yeah. <laughs> happy. Anyway, so it's not that hard to adapt it, but like, but but I'm actually thinking about doing that seriously in part because I actually by the time they get here, they're already you know they've had a ten year history of this reinforcement schedule, and then all of a sudden we want to be like, nope, psych, that stuff doesn't matter. It's so hard for them to like shut it off. And, and it's not just grades, it's all the other, it's, it's that getting into college is important. It's that your career after this is important. Yeah. It's, it's not enjoying anything along the way. Like I'm intrigued also by, by the possibility, because I don't know, my intuition is the same as yours, but it could be one of those things that we're just wrong about, um, but whether this has actually had a negative effect on creativity, which is all already a hard enough thing to study. But, but I yeah, wonder yeah. if all, all of this, the, the focus on getting the grade by doing the assignment that is guaranteed to get you the good grade and not allowing yourself the possibility of it. I've known so many people where I'm like, they've never failed at anything. And I'm like, you should try it because like once you fail, like then it just won't be that, it's it's not that bad. Like, well, so this is the other thing that blew up was like, so the classes, I don't know if memes are as big a thing. I know memes are a big a thing at Cornell because we get some of the Cornell memes. I don't know if they're big in Houston, but they do these like, little cartoon things that have text that are these kind of jokes about things going on in their lives. And on the Yale meme page, my class is like big on this. And so one of the memes that they came up with for the class was a meme from the matrix 
where I was like Morpheus because I'm flat. Because <laughs> <laughs> for the uh, record. For the African. record. No, um, so I was Morpheus okay. and it, it was like, what if she's just going to give us all Ds to teach us that it doesn't matter? Like what if this class is like the Matrix where she's going to like just basically give us all like really bad grades? And so I put the meme up in class like as a joke. Like, and it wasn't like I made the joke about it. It was just like flash the meme up in the PowerPoint. And students like freaked out. And then later Jesus that afternoon, Christ. I got calls from the academic deans who are like the oh my the, God. the people who are the academic yeah. administrators in the colleges. And they're like, I'm sure this is bullshit, but like I've gotten a few calls from parents, from parents. So within like four hours of me making a joke about how the class was the matrix and I was going to give kids D's, like I got actual calls from parents. So I had to like send this email that's like, in fact, I'm not going to give you all D's. However, like <laughs> hashtag irony. <laughs> Like, it is actually kind of proving the point I was trying to make in class where, like, y'all are kind of obsessed with grades to the point that it's, like, crazy pants. And it's the parents. It's the fucking parents. Like, I do think that parents are a huge yeah. problem in these. Ho- and, and that's a hard thing for you to change. The, the thing is, like, some of this stuff is all stuff that we all experience. I mean, you know, we're all making fun of, like, you know, we don't exercise much as we shoot and all this stuff. But some of it is, like the stuff we've done to this generation. And about that, I feel like really bad, like with like full, full, no humor, strength, sincerity, like it just feels yeah. fucking awful that we've made them so anxious. And it's like our generation that did that to them. Cause like, yeah. why would that have happened to them without like what we cared about in this stuff? And they get so lost, right? Like they leave, you know, they, they're the Yale kids at least are here and they're like obsessed with grades. And then they're like, wait a minute, like senior year comes around. They realize like, there's not going to be grades anymore. And then they're like, Oh, the next thing I'm going to get steps with, like, I guess I have to get a finance. Job. Like, they just find the next accolade, and it's just this like long tunnel that they never get to the end to. And it's like they're just going to wake up if they make it to 50 because they have like you know cortisol shooting through the roof. Like, they're going to get there. Their short ass miserable life. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's like we shouldn't have done that. To them. It's just bad. Anyway, I mean, other stuff just like sleep. Like, so I yeah. do these lectures on sleep and how important sleep is. I lecture I on sleep up, too, I know. Yeah. And it's like, so it's like you put up these graphs about sleep deprivation and the sleep deprivation condition is five hours in one of the studies I show. And they all start laughing because they're like, that is a great, you know, if I get five hours a night, that's a great night. I and know. I'm like, are you I watching know. the data? Like, you can't do this to your body, like sperm count and heart disease and diabetes, like all this bad stuff. Like, I tell, I know, I tell them that, to, like, in my sleep lecture, I'm like, look, dude, this is probably one of the easiest things. You know, that's like, and it's hard to convince them. I even try to go the dirty route and say, like, no, your grades will actually be better if you sleep more. Like, the, the time, the trade off mm-hmm. there between studying another hour versus sleeping another hour is like, it's like, pre- it's pretty clear. That's actually but, sad, but that's that's one of the ways we start the course because there there are these data in positive psychology that like happier people like make more money and like happier people get better grades. So I start the class like that. Like if you do these things, you'll actually get this yeah, stuff that yeah. you think matter. Like later you're gonna learn that doesn't matter, but like for now, just be with me on this. <laughs> it's good yeah. that you're doing cocaine, but bad that you're doing it because you weren't sleep. Yeah. Well, like don't do it to study, do it to celebrate the A. Yeah. Not to get the A. <laughs> Come on. Your priorities are so wigged out. No, they do that with meditating, too. It's like that meditating will help you be more successful and more productive. And and, and it's so, I mean, it's true. It's definitely true. But it also is against the spirit of why you're meditating. Yeah, yeah. but that's kind of what happens with some of these. And so people give the class shit about that. So there's been a lot of like many, many op-eds in 
the Yale Daily News and elsewhere about the class and like, is it good that everybody's so selfishly focused on happiness and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But like, actually what happens is even if you do the practices just to get some personal benefit out of it, if you do them right, like you, it actually flips the switch where like, right. this is like Liz Dunn and Mike Norton. Like Tamler's insincere gratitude journal. <laughs> it still right, works. Exactly. Right. That's the thing is like, you, if you do it, like you end up, so I started doing these like loving kindness meditations. I actually really suck at doing meditations where you have to focus on the breath. I just get, I just, it just does not work for me at all. So I do these like loving kindness ones where you're talking about how, and like, it works so powerfully. Like, that's the thing. I'm like a deeply not sincere person, but this stuff <laughs> just like, it just like wrestles the lack of sincerity from you. Cause you're like, I guess it just works. And like, if you love people, it's good. Like. I have I have a hard time with that one. I gotta I, I haven't fully tried it, but yeah, I I still haven't overcome my. We did it. We did it in the class. So we had a, a a woman, Tracy George, who works at the student health center, came and did a loving kindness meditation in class. And so it was like twelve hundred students with their eyes closed, like sending kindness into the world. She actually had them like if you're near a person that you know, if you're sitting with a friend, like hold their hand and like, and it was like actually kind of powerful Aww. to like watch this classroom of students in the Aww. midst of like midterm season just taking a moment to like feel love like it was hard not to be like moved by that um that's beautiful that's really cool yeah i had a question that's that's so obvious that like i'm embarrassed um when i look on happiness I, I feel like i remember i think it's matt killingsworth who has these mm -hmm. experience sampling data you track everything that people are doing and having sex is a pretty good thing having like, is sex there... is the only time you don't mind wander yeah and it's the highest thing in all the experience sampling by like a lot which the one thing i don't understand about that study is like to get the data people had to be like having sex be like, the, uh, you know, yeah. like what are you doing and i'm just like having sex like yeah. how happy are you like Boom, so I'm so happy. but i'm like if you're actually doing the like survey thing on the phone all the answers were just asdfjkllll -L -L -L. they just coded that as sex yeah anyway but no but sex is like sex is like super super happiness boosting I almost put that on my list of time athletes, like on the things like go to the botanical garden, like have sex with someone. But then I was like, no, because then if they don't have someone to have sex with, they're going to be really sad. And like, I want to give a social norm message. You know, 75% <laughs> of Yale undergrads give hand jobs to each other. You can get even more famous, Lori, if you just <laughs> set it up so that all the students can have sex with each other. Also, like cult leader, like that's what the cult leaders do. Right? It's all like happiness stuff for a while, and then it goes bad. Yeah. yeah. No, but 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 the reason, I mean, the Killingsworth data is that the reason is that it's one of the few times that people aren't actually mind wandering. Yeah. But the thing is, there's, there was all these things that we didn't mind wander in before that the tech, I mean, you were saying the thing about the Amazon thing, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Usually when you're like really engrossed in a show that you love, you're not mind wandering. But when you get the little like peep, like you could learn about this actor. Like now we're mind wandering again. Yeah. Um, yeah. The data also suggests that like that having a phone present is a way that you can do that for everything. Right. Like you're, you're in a massage and you're thinking like, Oh, did I leave my phone? And like all of a sudden, so just the mere physical presence of the phone and whether it's on. Yeah, was it Kurzban and Duckworth had this had this paper about um, about uh, when your phone isn't even physically available to you, a task seems less effortful because right. part of the feeling of effort is the trade-off about what you could be doing. That's right. right. So like reading a complicated paper 
like when Tamler and I are prepping to for our podcast, like right. if my phone is right next to me, it seems harder to read through whatever Bernard Williams critique of utilitarianism than yeah. if the phone is locked away in another room. Yeah. That's right. Um, and like, when is our phone locked away in another room? And never, like, right? Yeah. Only by yeah. accident. And then right. that's that's another case of like prediction failures that are so dumb because if I leave my phone at home by accident, I realize how happy I am. It's an awesome day. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, it's like it's like a affluent. It's it's some kind of affluence. It's not exactly time affluence. I think it's like, like attentional attention. affluence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I coined this term that I've seen in the literature. I don't think it's like a scientific term, but attentional hygiene. And it's oh, like, yeah. just like how clean is your attentional space? And I feel like just the mere presence of a phone or having a laptop, like the other thing is like uh, we do yeah. a lot of work on laptops and yeah. laptops are, I mean, they're good for stuff. Yeah, and I see in your class, in your syllabus, you have a laptop section in your class. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is like the, the nudges on that work. So, that, so they... Students, the policy was like no laptops except if you opt into a special laptop section. And it's not just opting into using your laptop because the, the data actually suggests that it's like smoking. It's like you get yeah. secondhand smoke from other yeah, people's right. laptops. If you've yeah. ever been at a talk, my colleague Paul Bloom, who's always on the Twitter the whole talk, like I feel like I'm paying attention to the talk worse than he is because I'm like, <laughs> what's he tweeting? Like, what's he reading? Like, what's Paul doing? Like, it's so interesting. But also he calls me out. He's like, I saw you were on your computer when I was giving him a talk. <laughs> but anyway but yeah so 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 the students had to email me specifically to opt in i didn't give them any reminders and only 15 of the 1200 students like opted into a laptop section so how do you enforce that you don't i mean they yeah. i think they just like get scared i mean it it actually ends up being socially enforcing right like all the other people power stuff it's like they know that's the rule in the class they've heard the data on the fact that it's bad their their friends aren't doing it right yeah. like i'm totally fine not to be on my phone in a talk unless yeah. there's somebody else messing around with their phone in a talk <laughs> it depends on the talk that's fair that's i don't go to many philosophy talks <laughs> where, they, where they're just reading their papers i'm reading along buddy <laughs> Hey, I've been to a lot of bad psychology talks. Fair enough. Fair enough. You met neuroscience. We, the word you meant was neuroscience. <laughs> this has been really fun, Laurie, and it's I'm I'm joking aside, like I was very moved by just reading the syllabus. It just seemed like such a good thing. It seemed like something that I imagine a lot of professors are going to try to imitate, yeah. copy, plagiarize. I know I will. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy if you have folks who are listening who want copies. I'm happy to send copies of the syllabus. Yale doesn't have them publicly available, but happy to send it off. And the Coursera class is soon on March 19th to be available for free to everybody. And it's just kind of a shorter version of all the stuff we do in the class. So even if you awesome. want to steal those lectures, they're fully and you, They're going to be video lectures. Are, there, are they videoing you right now giving lectures? Yeah, that, so the, the Coursera class was a short version that I taught just for my oh, students okay. in my residential college, um, but they are video in their lectures. They're not sure what we're going to do with them yet. Actually, there's some possibility that um, this company wants to buy them and show them in movie theaters. My life is very strange right now. So, <laughs> uh, so there's, but, you know, but like, but like probably like UPs, like the, they can't do that because all my content is like pictures of Tupac and things. They're like, do you have the copyright for that picture of Tupac? Oh, I'm like, no, God. dude, dude no, so, come on. I so. was, yeah, one time Ariely wanted like some non, like some common usage for whatever the creative commons for yeah. like, and I spent five hours looking for a picture of poop for my disgust talk. Like I couldn't <laughs> find a good creative commons picture of poop. I'm like, fuck this. I, we like literally purchased a stock image of dog poop 
<laughs> it's evil. But basically, if anyone like sees my lectures outside of Yale's campus, I'm going to get sued up the wazoo. So anyway, yeah, yeah that makes uh, sense. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, folks. It was fun, fun as usual to chat, even if we weren't talking about monkeys and sex and things. Yeah. When, like, what will what level of fame will you have achieved the next time you come on the podcast, or will it be the level of fame where you don't come on our podcast anymore? Maybe I'll probably. be a cult leader in my move. I'll be levitating, <laughs> yeah. and I'll be like. Let's just breathe the psychology. We will be, it will be the point where people will be searching for the obscure podcast that Lori once appeared on. <laughs> It'll be like a collector's item. Yeah. <laughs> like, she swore on that one. Yeah. Levitating, having sex with the phone locked away outside of the room. Uh, uh, all right. Well, I'm happier already. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Thanks so much.